on this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. Gifted is a really complicated term. And, you know, it evokes a lot of negative reactions in a lot of people. And it leaves families of gifted children struggling about how do we talk about this in a way that doesn't sound like we're bragging or saying, oh, my child's so special and all that. So it's, it's an unfortunate word, but that's what we're stuck with right now. That and a whole lot more coming up. Hello, everyone. Today, we are discussing the journey of parenting gifted kids and the importance of parents gaining confidence in their understanding of themselves, specifically regarding the motivation, emotions, and expectations we have as parents. Jessica and I are both parents, so this is a subject near and dear to our hearts. We also have our own gifted children, as a matter of fact. We are so excited to have the privilege of talking with Dr. Gail Post, a licensed psychologist with over 35 years of experience in the field and provides psychotherapy through telehealth in over 30 states as a SIPAC psychologist. Gail also serves as clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Gail is a parenting coach a workshop leader, and writer. She is a parent to two adult gifted kids, or grown-up gifted kids, as we say. Gail also has a thriving, long-standing blog called Gifted Challenges, which is a reputable resource for parents out there raising gifted kids and educators wanting more insight into meeting the social, emotional, and academic needs of gifted kids. She has written hundreds of articles, newsletters, and book chapters full of research, theory, and clinical experiences from her years of experience in the gifted world. In this episode, we are featuring Gail's new book, The Gifted Parenting Journey, A Guide to Self-Discovery and Support for Families of Gifted Children. Our conversation today will focus on Gail's recommendations for parents of gifted kids. Welcome, Gail. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate being here. Gail, would you tell us a little bit about your background story and how you arrived at your longstanding career as a psychologist with an expertise in giftedness? We are just wondering, were you an identified or unidentified gifted child? Um, Just some things that you had shared with us that you were an underachiever in high school. Um, those kinds of things. If you can give us kind of your little background scoop, we'd love to hear how you were able to um, become who you are today. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for asking that. No, I was not identified uh, as gifted, and you know, so I don't really know. Actually, uh, I might. I might have been. Uh, I had a talent in music, and that was pretty noteworthy. But other than that, I uh, you know I did well in school until I hit high school, and then I was really bored. And basically didn't put in a lot of effort. So, yeah, I was definitely an underachiever. I put an effort in the subjects I liked, but uh, but a lot of that, Del Siegel talks about that in terms of uh, basically a selective consumer. And I think that's what I was. I just sort of picked and chose what I wanted to do. When I went to college, I suddenly had to learn how to study. I had no idea what that was about. So that was that was an eye opener. 
but I came to the decision I wanted to, I started in a different major, uh, but then I decided to uh, go into psychology and I knew that I would have to get really good grades to get into a clinical psych doctoral program. So I really learned how to study then and, and figured things out. And, uh, you know, fortunately was able to develop a career as a clinical psychologist. I was never trained in giftedness. That was not something that was typically done in, you know, in the dark ages uh, for psychologists. But uh, I learned along the way, and especially um, about 25 or 30 years ago, I started seeing a lot of folks who seemed gifted. I worked a lot in the eating disorder field, and, and there seems to be a bit of an overlap with giftedness there. And when I went into private practice, I ended up seeing a lot of folks who were very bright or high achieving, and it really piqued my interest. But mostly having two gifted children got me involved. I had to learn a lot about giftedness and got involved in the schools in a gifted parenting advocacy group, which was really an amazing experience where we uh, were able to ally ourselves with the the supervision uh, of giftedness through the supervisor uh, in the program. And advocated for universal identification, for example, uh, for different ways that uh, testing was approached. So it was a great experience and a very supportive one as well. And when my youngest graduated uh, about 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to continue to advocate and uh, started writing my blog, Gifted Challenges, and just continued. And so right now I, I see folks, I don't only work with giftedness, but I see a lot of folks who are gifted. I do some coaching as well, parent coaching, and I, uh, I continue to write and, and you know, feel very privileged to be able to spread the word. So let's jump right into your book, your amazing book, The Gifted Parenting Journey. And I think the start of your book is incredible how you really give readers that foundational knowledge and definition of giftedness, asynchronous development, which we so often see in gifted students, and even twice exceptionalities. Could you define some of these terms for our listeners so we use a shared understanding during this episode? Sure, I'd be happy to. One thing I just want to point out right away, though, is that gifted is a really complicated term. (laughs) And, you know, it evokes a lot of negative reactions in a lot of people. And it leaves families of gifted children struggling about how do we talk about this in a way that doesn't sound like we're bragging or saying, oh, my child's so special and all that. So it's it's an unfortunate word, but that's what we're stuck with right now. Uh, And gifted identification is also complicated. And we know that having an IQ of 130 or higher automatically qualifies but there are other kids who may be overlooked, certainly in terms of pre-screening me- measures, kids who don't quote unquote look gifted. And that could be any child who doesn't seem highly verbal and um, who doesn't fit certain stereotypes of giftedness. So children who are more spatial in their abilities, children who are English language learners, children who come from impoverished backgrounds, uh, children who are, are just late bloomers. I mean, there's a range of different reasons kids aren't identified. And some researchers are talking about using local norms. So instead of worrying about the 130 IQ to compare kids in terms of who really stands out in a particular school system, others talk about looking at motivational components or even creativity. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's very complicated and there are multiple forms of intelligence. I mean, there's a lot of talk about emotional intelligence, which some gifted kids have 
uh, in spades and others really struggle with. So it's a complicated thing. One one definition I really liked um, that I include in my book by a researcher, Papadopoulos, uh, uses the following, which I think is a pretty succinct definition. Uh, it, the process of nurturing giftedness in children is determined by the dynamic interaction between individual strengths and a supportive environment, which can stimulate or inhibit the full use of a child's ability. Have you at all thought, Gail, about maybe putting together um, like a suggested list of things that school districts, um, you know, or teachers, grade levels could use to help with the identification process? I'm just thinking I know it's up to the local district, but something along the lines of more than just a test score. Have you ever thought about putting something like that together? Well, I have not, and part, partly because, I mean, there's, there are a lot of good books out there. There's a lot of good resources. There's a lot of research being done, um, but I'd certainly be happy to do that. I've certainly blogged about it on my blog about ways parents can talk to teachers or how to approach the schools or things teachers can look for. I think one of the challenges is enlisting teachers who don't really have a lot of time because they're so busy dealing with the regular needs of the classroom. And uh, if, if giftedness is identified in pro- roughly one to 5% of the population, that's probably a very small percentage of their students. And they're so busy and overworked and overwhelmed that they often don't have time to really attend to gifted kids' needs unless they cause trouble in the classroom and then they're noticed, um, But which which can happen when they get bored enough. But um, you know, I think there there needs to be administrative support. But I'd certainly be happy to talk to any school district, any teachers, any parents advocating in their schools about strategies. I, I often do that in my coaching practice, figuring out okay, how do how do you go in as an ally with the teacher? You're not an adversary. You're there to work together to support this child, the student. And what can we do together to make that happen? Yeah. Do you have any kind of top? Um, things that you want to tell any of our listeners today about ways that you can talk to teachers to kind of give them a heads up, especially if they kind of fall in that category of a late bloomer or they're just, you know, maybe not as verbal as somebody in a more typical age category or just exactly what you were just kind of listing, those students that might have more of a spatial giftedness or, um, you know, just any of those things that they may be really close to that 130 score, but they're always going to be at a 126 or a 125. And, you know, they're really close, but they're not quite there yet. Um, what would you say to, to teachers or even to the parents listening that, hey, this is what you could say, or teachers, here's what you can look for? Well, you know, a lot of times this is it becomes more of a focus in the early grades. And then by the time high school happens, it's, you know, it's, it's a long shot, but most parents have more contact with their teachers in the elementary school years and to really talk about what the parents have noticed. And unfortunately this falls a lot on the parents to get educated, to learn a lot about giftedness, to learn what the signs are about how their children are different. And a lot of parents don't realize it because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? A lot of parents of gifted children are gifted themselves and what seems normal in their life, they think is normal. So if they were told, for example, hey, you talked before you were a year or you read before you were three, parents go into parenting thinking, hey, that, that's the way things are. That's pretty normal. What, you know, it's not a big deal, but it is kind of a big deal. And 
to be able to find out more about developmental norms and what is typical for children of, of a certain age. And for some gifted kids who have, you know, we haven't talked about it yet, but asynchronous development where there's a mismatch between certain skills and abilities or their maturity and their intellect, uh, it's some children may stand out with certain gifts and not with others, or they may have a hidden learning disability. You might have a child who's uh, really exceptionally bright and gifted, but they have they have trouble reading. They, they're dyslexic or they uh, have attentional problems. So there are a lot of twice exceptional conditions like that that might hide some of the abilities. And so uh, they can compensate fairly well sometimes by getting good enough grades or handing in good enough homework, but ultimately they're they're really not being challenged and they're overlooked. So I think the parent could go in really just talking about, this is what I see at home. This is what I notice. This is what my child talks about when they come home from school. I would never use the board word because board sounds like a, like a challenge and saying, well, the teacher's not doing their job, but more to go in collaboratively and say, how can we work together to do this because I would certainly hate to see my child start to act out, you know, the way he or she acts out at home at times when they're upset. Like, I, you know, they might be well-behaved now in the classroom, but we don't want to set up bad habits. And uh, I also, you know, you could also say, I noticed they don't really uh, spend a lot of time with their homework or they are developing some bad habits in terms of uh, time management or study skills. And I really like to set them up so that they continue to plunge into their work with enjoyment like I know that they can. Yeah, it makes me think of what you said earlier about yourself, how you had to learn how to study once you got to college because that didn't happen when you were younger. And I feel like that's happening more and more here with our kids today, that that exact example is can be problematic down the road. Yes, it can. Especially once they hit high school and they don't really want to listen as much either, you know, they, they, they have their own minds made up about things. Uh, they, if they'll just kind of sail through high school and some really underachieve and to the point of dropping out or getting terrible grades or losing respect for authority, uh, which, which is not just about certain teachers, but it kind of uh, goes across the board. It's, it's really problematic. And ultimately they usually hit a wall somewhere. It could be, in college, it could be on the job force, but eventually they're going to hit something that's actually hard for them and they have no idea how to deal with it. It's it's pretty devastating for many gifted kids. So when, as you're describing some of these things, I know I'm noticing some of these kind of warning signs as my own child is going through high school. Is that something that you would tell parents, yeah, that is your gut telling you to maybe reach out and contact someone like you or reach out and do more research or research, reach out and talk to a, a teacher or something like those are, are warning signs that you need to go and do something about. Is that kind of what you're recommending with, with what you've suggested to say and ways to talk to teachers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even once they're in high school, they're, they're still your kids and you're going to want to be involved to some degree. And there, there are ways of doing that through maybe the the school counselor or um, homeroom teacher or somebody that's primarily responsible. If you if you're in a state where there is a legal mandate for a gifted education and your child has a GIEP, that can be done at the GIEP meeting. Uh, but it can also be you can call a meeting 
throughout the year. You don't have to wait until the yearly meeting for planning, but to really bring up concerns about what you're seeing. And if there's a discrepancy in, between your child's uh, abil- abilities and their accomplishments, you know, something's up that they're not putting in the effort. And I, I think one of the hardest things, though, is when the child has good enough grades, you know, B plus, and, you know, they look good on paper, but right. They could really be under even valedictorians underachieve because they're they're just doing what they have to do to get through and they're not really investing. You know, that that excitement, that energy we see in our kids when they're when they're little, you know, they plunge into something they they love. They're so interested, you know, they become little junior experts in any particular field. And then suddenly they lose that luster, they lose that excitement. It's it's very heartbreaking for parents to see that happen. And is it hard to kind of rear them back the older they get into teenage years? Like, is it harder to get a high schooler to kind of come back and get motivated versus someone in sixth grade? I Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the horse has left the barn. You know, I mean, it's just they're on their own and it's really <laughs> hard to, to, to reel them back in. Uh, I know, for example, in in my children's public schools, when they went to public school, the, the school put in some effort in middle school in seventh and eighth grade to have a small class on executive functioning skills, essentially, you know, having them mm-hmm. study skills and time management. But none of the gifted kids really paid attention to that because they were doing just fine because all their schoolwork was so easy. So why would they need to learn it? You know, and so um, a lot of them didn't run into trouble until later when they really had some really tough AP course or when they got into college. So it has to be integrated in and, and early as possible. And that, I think, involves some of the uh, issues regarding advocacy that parents often have to get involved in in terms of how decisions are made in schools about gifted education. Because as we know, most public schools and even a lot of private schools do not address this topic for a variety of uh, philosophical or financial reasons, or just out of not knowing, just innocently being ignorant of it. Yeah. And we could probably have a whole nother episode on advocacy because, (laughs) and it is such a critical, um, you know, topic in our gifted, in our gifted world, but bringing it back to your book, um, you really incorporated some real life relevant stories in your book because you surveyed, 428 families um, through your blog and other sources, but you gathered these parents who were willing to do your survey and you gained some amazing knowledge about their experiences. So will you share a couple key learnings from your survey, good, bad, that you have from your results? Well, most of them kind of fit what I expected based on my own experience, but also uh, in reading the research that's out there, there's not a lot out there about the parents' reactions. And that's partly what the book is really geared for, self-reflection. Yeah, and self-reflection. Parents. But uh, there's a lot out there about uh, concerns that parents have. And across the board, as you might imagine, receiving a good education is one of the top concerns among most folks. And that certainly came out in the survey I did. Uh, they're basically uh, What was really kind of amazing was when asked what they worry about or most concerned about, 90% of the parents surveyed indicated that they felt a daunting level of responsibility to ensure that their child receives a good education, either a lot or always. It was just, 
it, it was just pretty much across the board. That's what they are concerned about. And along those lines, also, sixty uh, percent uh, were worried that their child would never receive a meaningful education, whereas only five percent indicated that they never worried about that. So only five percent of parents were not worried about their child's education. Uh, I know it was, it was really incredible. Uh, 54% worried a lot or always that their child will never reach their potential. And 50% worried a lot or always that the child would not find happiness going forward. Uh, and there were a lot of other, other responses based on the, the schools and, and also their sense of their child and, and other realms. But I think what really stood out was this worry about their future, which I think is it plagues most parents in terms of am I doing enough? Am I not doing, you know, am I doing too much? Um, the other thing though that came out of it, there were there were a lot of expressions of joy and gratitude uh, for the kind of child that they have. And I, I could share just a couple of, of quotes of what life is like for these folks. But in addition to asking just more straightforward data and, and questionnaire material, I also asked if some people wanted to write a brief uh, summary of, of thoughts that they had. And I was really overwhelmed with the many responses I got. I mean, a couple hundred responses from people. And I, I had, to, had to whittle them down for the book. I couldn't put them all. But if, if I may, I'm just going to read three that I thought really kind of life. Uh, living with intensity is for me the hardest part to balance. It feels like from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to sleep, we join them on a roller coaster that keeps going, no stops. Another one was such immense joy and heartbreak, enthusiasm and exhaustion. The words insatiable and constant energy often come to mind when I describe what it can be like. And finally, I think this one is pretty funny and pretty telling. Uh, I often wonder what dinnertime conversations are like in other households. In ours, they can bounce from some new science theory someone read about to reminding our teenagers to use silverware, to etymology, to glares from one kid because their sibling is chewing noisily, to discussions on which religion is best, to one kid teaching the other how to swear in Latin. It's exhilarating, <laughs> but exhausting. <laughs> I thought that was great. I that thought that was great. A really great. Yeah. That, that describes in real life what asynchronous <laughs> development really is. <laughs> right yeah. there at that dinner table. Exactly. Exactly. Well, going back to your point about the parents' worry, I'm curious, do you feel like that's an age-old worry, no matter what decade we would have asked that question in? Or do you feel like that's something just of where we are in 2022, 2023, post-pandemic? Well, I, I think it's it's an age-old worry. And it, I don't know that I've ever come across studies that have directly compared parents' worries with, uh, with uh, neurotypical children, with gifted children. I, don't, I haven't seen that. Of course, there's been hardly anything about the parents' concerns in general, which is why I wanted to write this book. But uh, I, I think it's, it's pretty daunting for parents of gifted kids just because there is not much information out there at all. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting when I was doing research for the book, I came across a really wonderful dissertation uh, from a woman, Natalie Rimlinger in Australia, who looked, was, it was one of the few studies out there that looked at, at the parents' satisfaction or dissatisfaction uh, with the schools or with what's going on with their kids. And one thing she noted was when she was doing a Google Scholar literature search, she came across 26,000 hits for parents of children with autism. Uh, 
Now, granted, raising a child with autism is really tough. It's really complicated. But 26,000, when she looked for that for parents of gifted kids, it was like under under 10. So, yeah, so it, it really shows how little information is out there. And now, uh, certainly since my kids grew up, uh, when I when they were younger, there wasn't as much out there. I mean, there was Hoagie's Gifted, which is a wonderful site, but there wasn't there wasn't that much. Now there seems to be an explosion of information and there are a lot of sites and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of research, a lot going on. But ultimately, every child is different and every gifted child is different because they don't fit the norm. And the fact that they don't fit the norm makes it really hard for parents. Uh, any parent, a parent of a neurotypical child or one with special needs, they all, you know, they all struggle in different ways. Right. Because kids are kids and they do their stuff. But that's frustrating. And every child might have a teacher they can't stand and or, you know, a subject that's hard for them. But again, parents of gifted kids, you see such a range in terms of of uh, abilities and uh, achievement status. And also there's a lot out there about the level of intensity and, and heightened sensitivity among these kids, high energy. Uh, so it's it, it makes it more difficult. And it's also something that it's hard to talk about with, with peers because unless you're friends with someone who also, or have a family member who also has a gifted child, they're not going to fully get it. They, you know, they might be polite, but you know, the worry is why they think, and you know, what has she got to complain about? What has he got to complain about? So uh, it's complicated. It, it can be very isolating. Yes. Very complicated. One of the chapters that really hit home with me the most was probably chapter eight. You talk about the importance of love and limits and, you bring up, you know, empathy and trust and secure attachment and discipline. So as parents juggle the complexities of raising a gifted child, the gifted parenting journey. Well, I, I think overall, it's really important to know yourself, trust yourself, uh, compassionately acknowledge what your needs and fears are. Because as parents, we all, you know, we don't come into this with a, a driving manual. You know, we're learning as we go. And even if you have more than one child or even more than one gifted child, each of them are very different. And so what works for one may not work for another. So to learn from your mistakes, to uh, be curious about what's going on, to not be so hard on yourself, to use self-reflection and self-discovery to really understand what are your motivations, what drives you, where, where, where are you getting your information from? Like who influences you? Is it your your own childhood family of origin influences? Is it friends? Is it is it books you've read? Just to know why you're coming to the decisions you're coming to and to try to develop a sense of core values and goals that you want to uh, enlist as much as possible. We all have bad days, right? We all have struggles with our kids, but to have a kind of a core foundation of this is what's really important and this is how I want to raise my child is, is so essential. So, Gail, when we think about each kid being, you know, a complete individual or as we've all said, you know, no kid is alike, no two kids are alike. How do you truly follow those basic guidelines um, of what you've said in, in Chapter 8 of conveying acceptance for a child's feelings, even if you disagree? Well, I think it, it's about letting them know that you, first of all, that you love them no matter what, that even if they're being punished for some misbehavior that you, you still love them, that they're, the love is not contingent on their accomplishments or their good behavior, but it's always there. And by feeling understood to listen to them, to let them talk about what's going on. You don't have to agree and you don't have to let them go on and on because some of them are like little junior lawyers where they'll, they'll um, take you to task and try to point out all the reasons that, um, 
they want to poke holes in your de- decision, but um, basically to listen to them, uh, to be clear and consistent as much as possible, which is hard. You know, the kids can wear you down. You know, they're at the grocery store aisle and they're begging for some candy and you say no about 50 times and finally it's like, okay, already. <laughs> and you know, then what they learn from that is, oh, well, if I nag and whine even louder next time, maybe I'll get it sooner. So it's really important to try to be consistent or to try to develop a consistent plan with your spouse or partner uh, so that you're not uh, disagreeing in front of the child. Ideally, uh, but to really just convey that uh, we're doing certain uh, things, we make certain decisions. You may not like them, but we feel it's in your best interest. But we'll listen to you. You know, we'll hear you out, and maybe we'll be flexible and change our mind. We're you know we're entitled to change our mind as parents, but for now we have to set certain limits. And ultimately, as much as they resist, kids benefit from limits because it creates a sense of safety and familiarity with what to expect so that children in a, in a more disorganized household where they don't know one minute the parent's going to be mad and setting all these limits, the next minute they let them run off and do whatever, it's confusing. And they don't feel that sense of safety, like at least I know what to expect from my parents. Uh, but with gifted kids, especially any limits or discipline need to make, needs to make sense to them. They may not like it, They might feel angry, but um, they'll feel betrayed, for example, if one child is punished a whole lot more than the other, or if the punishment seems out of proportion to the uh, the, uh, problem that they're they're being punished about. Any harsh forms of punishment, anything demeaning, shaming, uh, ridiculing, uh, and certainly any physical punishment like hitting or spanking is, is really a problem with all kids, but I think gifted kids feel particularly wounded by that and they learn to distrust parents and, and will hold a grudge about it. So there, there are many other ways to figure out how to work with your gifted child when they need discipline or uh, need some redirection. But figuring that out and again, what works best for one child may not work for another. So it's all a learning process and you just have to be kind to yourself and realize that you're learning along the way. Yeah. And I love how um, in that same chapter, you talked about how you need to let them know that you can handle their feelings, because as soon as they start to sense that you are enraged about things often or overwhelmed, that they will start um, hiding their feelings from you and not opening up in the same way. So I need I know I need to remember that as a parent often that, you know, the more you control that, the, the more they'll continue to open up to you. And, you know, the thing is, there there are crises that happen in people's lives. You know, there, there are deaths, there are losses, there are job losses, and parents are going to be upset in those situations. And it's an, it's fine for your child to see that, yes, you're upset, but to also know that you'll get through it so they don't have to worry about you. So, you know, sometimes I'll hear in my, my clinical practice uh, someone saying about, you know, a teenager, for example, saying, oh, my, my mom is my very best friend and sounds lovely, right? Especially for all the parents out there who are like, oh my gosh, I wish my kid would say that. But uh, it's really not healthy, right? I mean, you can have a great relationship with your parent, ideally, but if they're your best friend, then you have to wonder, is there some uh, imbalance in the relationship where then the child becomes the confidant or the, the one who kind of supports and bolsters up the parent's 
mood. So it, it's something, it's, it's a fine line, but it's something to realize that, yes, you can have a bad day. You can go through something hard, but ultimately it's important to not be going to your child and, and talking about you know, all your financial struggles or your marital problems or whatever. Like it's, right. it's just not, not good for them. Well, and I think that leads to what you've talked about in chapter five, how you directly but gently talk to parents about their expectations of their gifted children. And, you know, you you did a good job of explaining it's kind of like um, when you're on an airplane and the flight attendants tell you, you know, you have to put the mat, the oxygen mask on yourself before you would put it on any other children. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with with what you were just saying about the balancing act that we have to do from chapter eight, you know, love and limits. That's that's a true balancing act. You know, you couldn't have said it better. Well, talking about expectations, um, would you tell us how you would advise us parents to push our gifted kids to try to reach their full potential without indirectly getting them to just do it to please us or resent us as parents? Yeah, that is such a good question. And it's it's also something I think that plagues most uh, families Mm -hmm. of gifted kids. In in that survey that I did, 52% of them uh, indicated that they worry a lot or always about how much to push their child. So it's, it's really a pervasive concern. So the thing with expectations, I mean, expectations in and of themselves are not a bad thing. And maintaining positive, realistic, and appropriately high expectations for your child lays the groundwork for their own path toward internalizing values related to responsibility and achievement. And we all have expectations for our kids, right? I mean, it could be chores. It could be family commitments, like, yes, you have to go visit the relatives on Thanksgiving. It could be having respect for others. so there, there are all these expectations we put out there normally. I think it gets more complicated when it comes to gifted kids. But ultimately, children learn from experience and build resilience when they do feel challenged, but also when they have the freedom to fail and recover, where uh, the bar isn't set too high uh, and where they don't feel like failure is not an option. Because if that happens, they can really feel pressured and uh, it can it can create a lot of problems, anything ranging from uh, anxiety and perfectionism all the way to underachievement where they just give up and they stop trying. I think it's really important just to be attuned to your child's uh, unique abilities and personality. So to consider their interests, their temperament, their emotional reactivity, their motivational struggles, how responsive they are to guidance their developmental level, and their drive to achieve. Certainly what we would expect from a five-year-old isn't what we would expect from a 15-year-old. So, for example, their age and uh, their maturity really play a role. But your self-awareness as a parent is also important as you explore your own wishes and fears and expectations and the value placed on success. Like if you grew up feeling like, oh, I had to work so hard in school. I I didn't have a break. I was such a perfectionist. I don't want that to happen to my child. So I'm never going to push them. Well, maybe you have the kind of child who needs a little bit of encouragement or a push or vice versa. You know, someone who felt felt that they were overlooked in school and didn't achieve at all. Then you're kind of on top of your child about it. So just to really look at your child's unique needs and also to think about, again, in terms of success, it doesn't have to be good grades or winning awards. 
you, you can define success and achievement based on what is important for your child's uh, level of personal and academic growth. So for example, uh, developing organizational skills or staying focused in a class they don't like or showing kindness toward um, their next door neighbor, uh, the kid next door who they don't really like that much or overcoming social anxiety. All of these can be important goals. And in fact, some kids who are very perfectionistic, sometimes schools will work with them to develop a portfolio rather than look at grades, and certainly in the earlier years when grades don't matter as much, but so they can see their progress over time and see their growth rather than worrying about, oh, I got a 97 on a test. It's not a hundred. So um, some kids can, can be like that. Uh, so you really want to think about, again, uh, to encourage them to find what sparks their intrinsic interests, to understand what motivates them, uh, and to understand any roadblocks to completing a task or doing, you know, doing what they really want to do, but they're holding themselves back from it. Like, for example, perfectionism, giving up. Oh, I, I really want to take that course, but I know I won't get an A, so I won't take it. Or low self-esteem or anger about a task that seems boring and pointless or their executive functioning issues. Can you tell our listeners who might be interested, you know, after listening to this episode of joining your coaching or contacting you through your different um, websites and, and Facebook and things like that, we'll share. Um, but what what might be an example of or how can you describe the way that you would coach in your coaching workshops and opportunities that you have online for parents? Because I'm thinking, for example, when we are talking about the self-awareness as a parent, that is so important, which sets you apart from a lot of these other different parenting books is to have that self-awareness. What if, you know, for example, I'm as a parent really good at, you know, pushing myself and being that achiever, but yet I have an underachieving child who is 16 and may not be pushing themselves in a way that I feel like I would have done it naturally or that I did when I was that age. But yet what you're saying is being attuned to that child and knowing that, okay, I'm going to have to kind of let off the gas a little in certain places, but yet nudge in other places. Is that something that you talk through with the parents during your coaching workshops and your coaching opportunities? I'm sure those, those are really good questions. So uh, I have this way of differentiating between psychotherapy and coaching. And coaching is really, in my mind, for what I do, I know there are a lot of people who, who do coaching out there, but I really see it as kind of an offshoot of psychotherapy, but it's not really psychotherapy in that we don't get into like a lot of details about the person's life, but we'll kind of pinpoint certain issues and concerns. So okay. people come to me often, they're trying to figure out, does my child need to be tested? Are they gifted at all? Or how do I advocate in the schools? Or how do I deal with their underachievement, for example, or college mm -hmm. planning, which is huge. Yeah. A lot a lot of parents who are all over their kids about every little thing, you know, where, where are you going tonight? And, and what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Somehow that that um, focus gets lost when they decide, well, they're going to be 18, so they can decide wherever they want to go to college. But we know that that doesn't always work because there's yeah. financial issues involved and kids may make choices that aren't as helpful for them. So uh, in, in terms of your question about an, an underachieving child and a parent who was an achiever when they were younger, I, I think some of that is uh, just coming to terms with your own disappointment and grief that okay. this is not 
what I wanted for my child. And I am so darn disappointed and sad about it. And how can I get the support from people in my life? It could be through a therapist or a coach, but it also could be through your spouse or partner or your friends or family members to, or a parenting support group, just to really talk Mm -hmm. about, I'm so upset and I'm so worried about them. So you can put your worries elsewhere and they don't trickle down to your child uh, in an unhealthy way. But I think it's also trying to separate out that my child's different from who I am and Mm. they have their own path and they'll, they'll figure things out, but I still want to walk beside them and be part of that as much as possible and try to support them and try to support small achievements. So your incredibly bright and gifted child who can't hand in his homework, that might be the achievement of the year, you know, that they got their homework in on time. I mean, that's really important because that was hard for them. Figuring things out in geometry class isn't hard, but handing the homework is. So to kind of change your goals and your mindset about what, what's important. So that's one thing I do with, with coaching, okay. but yeah. I, um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, again, I try to enlist people uh, in terms of identifying their own sense of their personal wisdom and where their uh, motivations and ideas come from. And also to have the courage to stand out and, and go to the schools and say, this is what my child needs. And I really need you, you to help me with this. That's really good advice. And I know that your book has so much more of what you're just sharing with us today on this episode. So we just strongly, highly recommend all of our listeners reading your book, Gail, The Gifted Parenting Journey. And to follow Dr. Gail Post on social media, you can look her up on Twitter, which would be to search under Gifted Challenges with Gail Post, Ph.D., And then on Facebook, our listeners can search you up under Gifted Challenges. On Instagram, you can search Gail Post PhD and her website, www.gailpost.com and www.giftedchallenges.com. Gail, is there any other uh, ways to find you or or did we cover that? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a lot. So yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that would be fine. Um, and I, I really appreciate the input. And, and I also, with another psychologist, we're going to be starting some workshops for parents, uh, the gifted, focusing again on self-awareness and self-reflection. If anybody has any interest in that, yes. feel free to reach out to me. But um, mostly I want to thank you for having me on this. It's so wonderful that you have this podcast out there. You know, when my kids were little, there weren't podcasts at all. That's so right. uh, I really, I really appreciate it. So well, thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you, Gail. We have really enjoyed your time, your words of wisdom, and it's wonderful to just even get a little snippet of what's in your book so that, you know, we, we can dive into your book more and get more of these um, just almost like peaceful, moments of like, okay, I am, I am really doing these things that you're saying um, on, on our episode today. So in our conversation, this has just been wonderful. I know for me and Jessica as parents, but I'm sure all of our listeners out there are going to want to dive in and hear more. We're also excited to see how your workshops go that you were just mentioning. So we will definitely um, look into that more and we hope that our listeners will too. Um, It's just wonderful that you are able to provide so much clarity and reassurance to all the adults 
um, the parents and educators who are working with gifted kids. So we appreciate your work and we hope that you keep up the books, the chapters, the newsletters, articles that you're writing on your blog. Um, Just keep doing what you're doing for the gifted and neurodiverse world. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think it's so interesting that part of Gail's journey all began with her own children and really wanting to find that advocacy group, which then in turn led her to create her blog to put out rich information about gifted learners out there because she wasn't alone. There's so many parents out there wanting to advocate for their gifted children, but needing a place to do that. Exactly. And I think that's so important for anyone listening that's an educator or a gifted intervention specialist to think about that aspect of the parents and what are you doing to educate the parents, to make them aware, to help them understand what it's like to have a gifted child. And while we have gotten grants to supply a loaning library to our parents over the years, which has been fabulous, we actually have had a parent learning series for years. And then that kind of got cut off when we had COVID and the shutdown, but to really provide once a month opportunities in the evenings or even right at the early morning start of school, you know, it could be like a breakfast kind of idea. We've done that in the past. We've done midday and we've done evening for these parents to be able to come and just talk to us and talk to other parents and get together and feel like I'm not alone. I think that's been a huge piece for our personal program here in our district for our grade level. Um, But really, when you think about it, Jessica, this is really one of our missions as to why we are putting this podcast out into the world in the first place. Yeah, we felt like there was kind of a missing link somewhere where we as educators didn't have a place that we could go find some current and update information. And that's what led us to doing this. But back to Gail's book, I think it is an excellent thing, even if your district or school or place where you live doesn't have groups or meetings happening, grab a group of parents and read this book together as a book club because it has some really in-depth information about understanding and parenting gifted children. Absolutely. And one thing that just really hits um, home with us is just really stopping to think as a parent about your own self-awareness and your own expectations. I think that was a big takeaway from her book. And she even said herself, she really didn't find that out already published or even in the research as far as following gifted children and or their parents. Yeah. And the extreme emotions are okay. And being able to react and deal with them, I think, is one of my biggest takeaways. And what seems not normal is is truly normal. Yeah. And having that equilibrium, you know, kind of the metaphor of either putting the oxygen mask on your own self first, if you're on a plane yep. in an emergency, or I've always said pushing the gas pedal on and then letting your foot off, kind of going back and forth between giving a little nudge to your child, letting off a little bit and just kind of going back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. The one other thing I really love too is that she talked about the balance and the importance of love and limits. Yes. That was a great last chapter. She really kind of left us on a positive note because it is tough to navigate um, these, 
gifted children as parents, as educators, and even gifted kids themselves, I would say, struggle with themselves in and of themselves. But, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where if they feel your love, your un- unconditional love, they are really going to be able to have the keys to reach their fullest potential. Yep. Giving that safe environment with allowing them to do that. Yeah. All right. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Adventures and Being Gifted. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite place to listen to podcasts to hear our next episode. Share with your friends, colleagues, and anyone you think would benefit from Adventures and Being Gifted. And we want to know what you want to hear more about. So let us know by tweeting us at Being Gifted Pod or emailing us at adventuresinbeinggifted at gmail.com. Until, Until next time. time.